Open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. And we acknowledge that apart from him, we have no part with you. But that he has done it. He's done it all. He has won. We praise you, Father, for your plan that was contrived by your love. We praise you, Father, for the wisdom that brought it forth. We praise you, Father, for the boldness to lay it all upon the shoulders of your Son, knowing that he will do it. We praise you, Father, that you thought of us before the foundation of the world. We praise you, Father, that it is all of grace. That everything we have, every good breath, is from you through Christ and his perfect work on our behalf. We praise you, Father, that this knowledge makes us free. That even in the light of the mirror of your word, even when we see our own sin, Father, that we're confident and we're strong, knowing that our mediator on high has done a perfect work on our behalf. Father, I'm here tonight to teach on the thing for which you are most famous. Walking where angels fear to tread. How can someone say, I will teach on the grace of God? Father, please help us. Help me. And help the hearer. Father, all these beautiful 
young people that are here. Father, I don't want a lecture. I don't want anything but for you to get glory from them and for them to be filled and rejoicing in your son. Father, do much more than what we could ever hope to see by a lesser God. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Student, it's, I am well aware that I'm, I'm somewhat out of my element. I fit better preaching on the streets or in a jungle or a high mountain somewhere. I look at this text and I realize that the greatest men have, have drowned in this text. So who am I to say that I'm going to teach on the grace of God? But I know this. I know I have experienced the grace of God. And I know that I long with all my heart that you not just be informed, but that it, that it grabs a hold of you. This thing that God has done. You see, it's this. It's what God has done for us in Christ that, that grabs a hold of the coldest, meanest heart and does something with it, changes it, drives it. One glimpse of the grace of God is enough to propel you into piety for an eternity. Some of you truly desire to know the Lord and you want to be better men and better women than you are. Some of you, maybe your heart is so discouraged you no longer care or think you can be. Some of you may have even hardened your heart to the degree that you're somewhat of a scoffer, as we heard about this morning. I know this, that one grace, one glimpse of the grace of God is enough to take, is enough to take the hardest heart and turn it to Him. So let's begin. As pitiful as we think this journey may be, let's begin to look at this text. Look at it yourself. Don't let your mind wander. Think about every word till it becomes a reality in you, a flaming, burning, driving reality that causes you to persevere and to go on. And even in your old days, to bow your knee and worship. And say that the Lord is gracious. When we look at our text here that we have before us. It's quite an amazing thing. Paul begins in, in Ephesians chapter 1. And in verses 3 through 14. He is setting out for us something spectacular. Everything that God has done for us in Christ. Everything that God has done for us through Christ. And Paul just seems to be caught up in the glory like he's just ripped up in a wave. He no longer even has control of himself. He's just riding with the fullness of a heart as the Spirit of God leads him to tell us all these wonders of wonders that we have in Christ. And then he goes on to verse 15 
through 22, 23, and Paul begins to pray. And it's a prayer of every preacher, not only for himself, but for his hearers. That the Spirit of God would give you wisdom and understanding with regard to everything that God has done for you in Christ. And then something very strange happens. Paul comes to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And what do we see? He begins to talk about our station, our place, who we were prior to Christ, prior to our conversion. He begins to talk about radical or pervasive or total depravity, our spiritual death. He begins to talk about our sin, our grime, the vileness of who we actually were prior to Christ. And we ask ourselves, how can this be? I mean, Paul begins talking about all these things with such a powerful and a powerful way. It's a glorious language, everything that we are in Christ. And then all of a sudden he takes us and just seems to throw us down in the deepest depths of what we were. The language in verses one through three is as horrific as the language is glorious in chapter one. Now, why would he do that? This is a very important question. Why would Paul do this to us? For the same reason I would do it to you. And for the same reason any biblical preacher would do it to you. Let me point out a few reasons. First of all, it is taught in the Bible, but it is also seen throughout the life of every preacher. We have become convinced that men will never look up to grace until every hope of self-redemption has been destroyed. Do you realize that? In Romans chapters 1 through 3, this is what we see in the Apostle Paul. He is laboring with that gigantic intellect of his, with his vast knowledge of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What is he seeking to do? He's seeking to do one thing. Close every mouth and make the entire world accountable to God. That's what he's doing. And that's what preaching does. And that's what this passage, if you listen rightly, will do to you tonight. God's desire is to show you your need. And yes, He will hurt you in order to do that. And the preacher who loves you will hurt you if it is necessary to destroy your hope of self-redemption. That's why Paul takes us from the highest heights to the deepest depths. But there's another reason. We cannot fully appreciate, even see the glories of the grace of God until it is seen in the light of our own radical depravity, our own immorality. You see, it would be a wonderful thing if Christ had died for righteous men in error. That would have been amazing. But He died for morally depraved, spiritually dead, hostile enemies of God in rebellion. And that's what makes grace so wonderful. That's what makes grace grace. That's why it's favor that is not deserved because of not only what we did, but who we were. 
Now, there's another reason. And this, to me, is the most important. Because in the end, in the mind of God, it's all about His Son. It's all about His Son. We cannot love Christ as we ought to love Christ until we see who we were in light of Scripture. We cannot. Do you remember the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7? What did Jesus say about her? She loved much. Why did she love much? Because she had been forgiven much. You see, you can't love Christ much until you've seen how much He has forgiven you and what it cost Him to do so. And you cannot see how much, how great the forgiveness is that He extended to you until you actually see in light of Scripture what you were. What you were. You know, it's amazing to me. There's a dividing of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, but I want you to know that the dividing of the sheep and goats happens all the time. As a matter of fact, it happens in almost every sermon. Sometimes when I'm asked to go to a place and I preach on radical or pervasive depravity, you know what the reaction is? It's astounding. In a church filled with people, this is the reaction. One group is furious. It's like I poured gasoline on a hornet's nest. They are furious. They are indignant. How could you say these things about us? You don't know us. We're not that bad. And yet in the same church, you see people coming up to you afterwards with tears running down their face or sitting in the pew with their head in their hands going, Brother Paul, he's marvelous. He's marvelous. He is so wonderful. What are you seeing? Those who have tasted grace and those who have only heard of it. It's worth going through the darkest tunnel to view as much of our depravity as our heart can stand if when we come through that tunnel we see Christ in a greater light. You see, in, in one sense, the, the New Testament is about I don't want to say stimuli response, but when we get to Romans and we look at Romans 1 through 11, it's all about what God has done for us in Christ. And then he gets to 12 and he says, now, now, based upon these mercies, offer your life, offer your life to him. Based upon what? Upon everything he is and everything he did for you. Ephesians is the same. The first three chapters. What is it all about? What God has done for us, what God has done for us, who Christ is and what God has done for us. The greatness of it is seen by what He gave us. And what He gave us was His Son. And when you see that, it changes everything in your life. That is why grace is the most powerful motive to piety, to obedience. You're overwhelmed by the love and grace of God. And that's why Paul does what he does here. Now, let's look at the rest of the text. Verse 1. Of chapter 2. You were dead. You're young. Most of you haven't been in a war. You haven't seen a lot of people die. I've seen a lot of people die. We were dead. Death is, is supernatural. Death is horrifying. 
The images never leave your mind. Death is a terrible thing. Well, when it says that you were dead, what does it mean? You were condemned to die. Condemned to die. What else does it mean? It also means you were under the power of death. There's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. You know, I had such, a, a, such an awakening when I was just, just turned 17 years old. My father and I were putting up a fence on, on my father's ranch. And we were talking about the upcoming basketball season. And we were talking about all these things. And he was so excited. And we were rolling out wire. So you have this big roll of wire. And you have a metal rod through it. And one's on one side. The other's on the other. And you're rolling out wire. And all of a sudden he screamed. He was a big man. He screamed. I didn't know if a snake had bit him. I didn't know what had happened. And I ran to him. And he fell. And we fell to the ground. And he was dead. He was dead. Massive heart attack. He just died. I realized that day, didn't matter how young I was, I would grow old, how strong I would grow weak, how rich I would, it couldn't save me from death. Didn't matter if I fell in love, she would die. Now that's not all this means, but it's part of it. Death is a monster and it's coming for you. Young person, you're under the sentence of death apart from Christ. There's nothing you can do about it. What else does it mean? It also means that, uh, that we're separated from God. We were separated from God and separated from the life of God. I can remember my early years at the university before becoming a Christian. And I remember this one place, Franklin Hall, and it was my freshman year there. And I would go in at six in the morning to take a shower. And I can still remember the bricks and everything about it. And I would turn it Turn the shower on, and it just seemed like there was death hanging on the walls. Death. It was like, why am I even alive? It's better to be a madman or a fool or drunk. Just no life. Money can't buy life. Fame can't buy life. Pleasure can't buy life. Life is life and life comes from God and we were separated from the life of God. Sometimes we need to think about what life was like before we became a Christian. You know, I am no friend of Catholicism. No, none whatsoever. There are a few paintings that sometimes evangelicals misunderstand. You'll see an, 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 a monk or a saint or someone standing there contemplating a skull. They go, oh, that's so morbid. Well, it is, and it's wrong, and it's not Christian, and it's not biblical. It's just another illustration of their bad theology. But what's being taught there is this. We are mortal. We are to contemplate our mortality. You young people need to understand this. Some of you will die before I do. I'm not saying that because I'm a prophet. I'm saying that because I studied statistics. We were dead. And there was nothing we could do about it. We were separated from life itself. But what else does it mean? And this is the main thing. We were spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. That's what we're really getting to. This is the core of the problem. Now, what does it mean that we were spiritually dead? I want to define it this way. We were unresponsive 
completely, totally unresponsive to a righteous God and His righteous will. And yet on the other side, we were wholly responsive to every sort of wicked stimuli, both human and demonic. Now think about that. Now I'm not talking about someone like me in my past. I'm talking about the prettiest among you here. I'm talking about the cleanest. I'm talking about the little girl who was raised in church with pink ribbons in her hair that memorized the book of Romans before she was three. I'm talking about everyone, all of us, all of us, all of us, spiritually dead, unresponsive to God, and yet responsive to every sort of wicked stimuli, both human and demonic. You may not define yourself as that way, but that's the way you were according to the Scriptures. Now, I want to point something out. This does not mean that we lacked the faculties to know God. We had enough faculty to know God, to know Him enough to know that we hated Him and we hated His will. This is not the case of God giving a book to a blind man and then condemning him because he could not read it. No. What does it have to do with? Our inability stemmed from what we were. Radically depraved, self-loving, sin-loving, hostile, enemies of God. We could not because we would not and we would not because we hated Him. And we hated Him because He was good and we were evil. I went to a school when I was younger that not, not a lot of Nobel laureates came out of my school, I can assure you. And there was a thing where if you did good in school, you were probably going to get beat up after school. And here's the question, when a, a, a young man goes and he's going to actually, do, does his schoolwork, is polite to the teacher, why is it there's, there's a group of people like me waiting for him afterwards just to beat him around a little bit? Because he was good. Why would anybody hate someone who's good? Only because they are evil. Why did we say no to God? Because we loved our sin. And why did we love sin? Because we were sinners. You know, in Genesis 37, we have a really good illustration of this. Joseph's brothers, it is said, that they could not speak a kind or a peaceable or gentle word to him. Now think about that. It says they could not do it. And that's amazing because they all spoke the same ancient Semitic language. They were all in the same proximity. They were brothers. They looked at each other face to face. So why could they not speak a kind word to them, to him? And the scripture tells us quite clearly, because they hated him. Sometimes in counseling, I've had to deal with either a man or a woman who spent many, many years in a marriage in which they did not deal with their sin and they both become so bitter. And I go to the man or go to the woman and say, you must forgive your husband, or you must forgive your wife, and the person say, I cannot, and they literally cannot. But it's not because they lack the faculty, 
It's because they lack the will, and they lack the will because of the hatred in their heart, because of what they have become. This is you. Imagine prior to Christ, imagine a prisoner, a political prisoner, down in a dungeon, a rotting, stinking, rat-infested dungeon, and the good and kind king comes down into the dungeon in order to visit him. And the king throws wide open the door and says this, acknowledge my sovereignty. Acknowledge my sovereignty and you're free. Acknowledge my kingship, my rule, and you're free. The prisoner gets up off his knees, dragging his chains behind him, walks up, grabs the door of the cell, slams it shut, and says, I'd rather rot in hell than bow my knee to you. That's you. That was you. That was you prior to Christ. And that is you if you are not at the present moment in Christ. Now, I want you to look here. He says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, this does not mean that we were at one time were spiritually alive, but then because of our transgressions and sins, we died at some certain point in time in our life. No, the Bible clearly teaches that you were born dead, spiritually dead. And throughout this sermon, I'm going to oftentimes use the second person singular you instead of first person plural we. Why? Because I want you to find no comfort in a group. I want you to know that I'm talking about you. Prior to your conversion, or I'm talking about you if you are yet to be converted. What this passage is teaching when it says that, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it means that your trespasses and your sins were the realm in which you lived as a morally depraved creature. As a spiritually dead rebel against God, you lived in this created environment, this environment you created for yourself. Just like fish who are quite accustomed to swimming in water, feel very comfortable there. So you lived, walked around in your transgressions and sins and were comfortable. Just like a bat who dwells, loves to dwell in the night, in the dark. That's his nature. Or swine who loves to dwell in the mire because that is his nature. So you were very comfortable by nature living in the context of transgressions and sins. Trespasses and sins. Now, when we look at these two words, trespasses and sins, we can go and we can make distinctions. We can go into the Old Testament, New Testament, and we can make distinctions between trespasses and sins. But I don't think that's Paul's idea here. Paul is being very Hebrew right now. In what way? He is piling one term upon another and he's using plural to, to tell you this. You lived not just in certain specific sins that were problems for you, but your entire life was carried out in the realm of every kind and sort of sin. Not only an abundance of sin, but a variety of sin. Every sort and kind of sin that was the world you lived in. 
Now again, this may be very difficult for you to see because you're seeing through your own eyes and the eyes of your culture, but when you look at this from the viewpoint of a holy God, it is true. It is true. Let's go on. Now, I want to come to the... This is the crucial point. And it's kind of... Well, it's definitely a tough illustration, but I'm not saying this for the shock value. I'm saying it to teach you. Why? Because I want you to love God. When the Bible says, young lady, young man, when the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, I don't want you to think of a washed cadaver, a beautifully washed body, wrapped in white linen and placed beautifully in a marble coffin or mausoleum. That's not the idea here. What is the idea? Well, this is it. I want you, this is you. I want you to think about this. Imagine you as a dead and rotting corpse at the bottom of a cesspool. A cesspool that was created from the refuse and the rot flowing out of your own body. That's what it means when it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You see, that's our problem today. So little teaching on God. So little teaching on how holy He is. Let me share with you something. Just, it, now, I'm not against swimming. Not against going to the beach if things are done in moderation. I'm just using this as an illustration. All right? This is true. What, what even Christians might wear to a beach today. If someone had worn that to a beach 75 years ago, the secular, unchristian authorities would have either fined them or thrown them in jail on the basis of either immorality or insanity. Is that not true? It's true. And yet today, it is quite accepted. Now what point am I trying to make? Just in a matter of 75 years, our standard of holiness has dropped so low that what we accept today as normal is considered by unbelievers 75 or 100 years ago as criminally insane. Now, compare our generation to God who is immutable and does not change. So when I use illustrations like this, I want you to see this is not for their shock value. This is real. This is what we were. And this is why Christ is so marvelous. This is why God's grace is so good. You know, Paul questioned, you know, I think at times, you know, as one born out of time, he would say like, I'm sure he thought, why didn't I get thrown in with the first 12? And I think all of us sometimes do that. You know, why did I go through what I went through? And sometimes I look at at some of you who were raised in church and then you go to Christian university and, and your life has been so blessed in that. And I think to myself, why? 
So much wickedness, so much evil, so many things I've done. And yet at the same time, when I read this passage, I can see it. I believe it. But it's true about the finest and most cultured among you. The same is true. If we were dressed at all, it was Isaiah, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, it was in the filthy rags of our own self-righteousness. If we were dressed at all, listen to what Jude says, Jude 1, 23. If we were dressed at all, it was in garments polluted by the flesh and worthy of loathing. Now, this gives a whole new meaning to Christ's redemptive work and the manifestation of grace that is there, doesn't it? In His incarnation, although always holy and always pure, even on that tree, He was the spotless Lamb of God. But He waded the cesspools of humanity. And believer, listen to me. On that tree, he dove down head first and pulled your rotten body out. And then he cleaned it off with his own blood. And then he breathed life into you. Now that is grace. That would be grace if a man did that for you. That would be great grace if an angel did that for you. But this is the Son of God's love who does this for you. That's why the hymn writer said, I need no other, I need no other argument. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Sometimes as you're in this Christian school, you probably have read biographies of Christians that seem to just go above and beyond. And you think, from where did it come? What drove them? What made them get out of bed? What made them to stand firm when hell itself was breathing death upon them? What was it? Were they of better stock than me? Were they just, what, what caused it? I'll tell you what caused it. They weren't better stock than you. We all come from the same stock, Adam's stock, and it's no good. What was it? They caught a greater glimpse of this. That's what it was. That's what drove them. They saw in deeper depth, in a more profound way, what they were prior to Christ. They saw something of who God truly is and what God truly did in Christ and that drove them their entire life. That's why all this modern day silliness about grace just leading us to throw everything away and be lax in everything is utter stupidity. Grace drives a man to devotion and piety. Things like this. When you put these things in your library, in your mind, in your heart, when you guard these things, they make you overcome what He did for you. The grace of Almighty God. Now, let's go on. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Now, in which you formerly, formerly walked around. Peripateo. It was your style of life. It was your conduct. You walked around in these things. Now, here's what I want you to see. 
we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So in one, in one instance, we're at the bottom of the cesspool, inanimate, unresponsive to God. And yet, radical depravity also means that we were animated with regard to all kinds of wicked stimuli. And so it's not only we're laying there at the bottom, but in another way you can look at it like this. You were walking around, wading around in this cesspool. Constantly stirring up greater and greater moral filth and producing more. Listen to what Isaiah says in 5720, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. That is you prior to Christ. That is me prior to Christ. Jude 1.13, talking about false prophets, but it has a general application to all of us. It says, we were like wild waves of the sea, casting up our own shame like foam. Dead to God, alive to sin. No storehouse of righteousness of our own, but a gigantic storehouse of evil. Now, if this wasn't enough, let's go farther and look what it says. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We lived, you lived, I lived in league with the world. Now, what does the world mean here? The world is everything in the universe, whether it be an idea, a thought, a philosophy, a word, a discourse, a work, a deed, a movement, everything in the universe that is contrary to the person and will of God. It says that you and I were in perfect agreement with everything contrary to Him. Now look, we were friends with a world that is hostile to God. Listen to James 4.4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Everyone in their unconverted state is an enemy of God. At war with God. Not only that, this world with which we were in league. Here's one of the most stunning things about it. And it's this. It is not moved, this world, it is not moved by any love for God. But it is moved by a love of self. It is moved by lust. It is moved by cravings and wicked desires. In 1 John 2.15-16 Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we were in league with a world that is contrary to God. We were in league with a world that is hostile to God. We were in league with a world that is loveless and driven by self and the capital offenses of self with our, which is lust and loveless cravings. That was us. That was you. Please don't think I'm talking about someone outside of this building. Please don't think I'm talking about just some of us here. 
with a tattered history. Talking about you. Now, not only this, but the Bible also says, look what it says, verse two, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Here, your moral depravity comes into full view through your past association. Not only were you an enemy of God, but your past association with the arch enemy of God. You were in league with this one evil person that in varying degrees is responsible for every ounce of suffering on this planet. And you walked according to him. How do I describe it? Like the people of Jerusalem. That's what we were like. What do you mean? They were given a choice. The prince of life or Barabbas. And who did they choose? Barabbas. And what does Peter say about them afterwards? He goes, you disavowed. You denied the Holy One. And you asked for a murderer to be given to you. Prior to Christ, that's the life that we lived. Now, I want you to also look here. It's very, very important. Look at the word he uses. The Spirit now working. The Spirit now working. Not only did we associate with Him, but to some degree, we were empowered by Him to do His will. The word work here, energeo. It it means that He was operative in us. He was working through us. He was setting forth power in us, not merely to deceive us, but to somehow use us as instruments. Listen to what Peter O'Brien says. It's an amazing statement that he makes. We rebelled against the authority of God, all of us, and preferred to answer to the promptings of His arch enemy. That's who we were. Hendrickson writes this, the devil was energetically engaged in us to make us even worse. That's us. Now, he goes on even further. That wasn't enough. And he he refers to the sons of disobedience and that we were in league with them. Now, what does that mean? Sons of disobedience, in a way, is is a genitive of description. It's this idea that, that when you looked at us, the outstanding characteristic in our lives, when God observed us on this planet, the thing that stood out most to His omniscience was this. Our disobedience, our rebellion, and our treason. That's what he says. We were sons of disobedience. We were marked by disobedience. Disobedience was the characteristic of our lives. Then he goes on. Look at verse 3. 
Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, what is he telling us here? Again, he's iterating something that is very important. Even though we were dead to God, we were alive to sin. And not only were we alive to sin, but he uses a very important word here. We were indulging in sin. And the idea is not that just every once in a while we fell into sin, but indulging of sin marked our existence. Now, I was teaching this one time and someone greatly disagreed with me in a secular university. He goes, aha, I have you there. He goes, because you call man fallen, so I'll use the same terminology, even fallen man practices restraint. Even fallen man does not indulge in every type and kind of sin. And my response was, have you read Romans 1? Let me take you there. Because this is what you need to understand about you. And this may be the hardest thing that I will tell you tonight. It is true that the natural man oftentimes will say no to certain offerings of evil. And we can say that not all sinful men indulge in every kind of sin, but you have to understand why natural men do not indulge in every type and kind of sin. It is not because of some moral goodness within them. It is not because of some purity in them or some holiness or, or some aspect of their being that is not depraved. The reason why men restrain themselves from evil, the reason why you, prior to Christ, didn't go headlong into every evil imaginable is because the common grace of God restrained your evil. And if God had pulled back from you you would have appeared as a monster of iniquity. You would have made Hitler look like a choir boy. You must understand that. This world, even the unbelieving world, owes such a great debt to God. Do you not realize that Hitler would have been far more evil than he was if God had not restrained him? Do you realize that if God did not restrain the evil of every human being on this planet, we would rip it apart and there would be no possibility of a work of redemption on the earth. He restrains evil that He may gather His people. And if you had any goodness, kindness, morality to you, and I'm sure that you did outwardly, it was because of the common grace of God. Not only working through His his spirit, but working maybe through your godly parents or working at a time through culture or something, but things were restraining you. And if all those restraints had been removed, your child center would have looked like the Lord of the Flies. That's true. You see, here's one of the things that even when I share this among reformed brethren, you see, if I tell a culture you are a sinner. They, they no longer listen. It's so common. I mean, we live in a culture that laughs about sin, uses sin to promote this, the sale of goods. I mean, we, we, sin is, is good. So sometimes I have to use this language. We were not just sinners. 
We were evil, fallen creatures deserving only the wrath of God. But He restrained our evil that a work of redemption might be done for the glory of His Son and the praise of His grace. Now let's go on. Finally, and we're going to change this over in a moment and get to the good news. But we were children of wrath. Children of wrath. It means that we were under the wrath of God. Now this is not talking about a momentary flare-up of the wrath of God for only the most horrid things we have done. But it's talking about the settled wrath of God upon evil persons and their evil practices. Jesus said this in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. It is a settled, ongoing wrath. And we were children of wrath. Now, the most horrible thing about this student is this. The two words, by nature. This is where it really gets nasty. In what way? His wrath abided upon us not merely because of what we did, but because of what we were by nature. You see, everything that we did was a result of what we were by nature. And His wrath was settled upon us because we had become, we were gross distortions of the image of God, evil creatures practicing evil. And then we get to verse 4. Finally to verse 4. Just when you thought I could grind you no more. Verse 4. But God... You know, this but God is worth a sleepless night. There's a place in my house, my bedroom, where when there's a really good full moon, it comes right through the window. And just to sit there in the night and think about things like, but God. In these two words, found the hope of humanity and the entire story of redemption. I painted an ugly picture. Some of you may even think I pushed it too far. But you see, if, if, if I walked up, I, I work a lot in the third world. If I walked up to Bill Gates and I said, here's a chicken wing, he would look at me and go, chicken wing? I don't want that. But I've been in places where if I gave a piece of bologna half-eaten to a starving child, they would fall down on their knees, kiss my hands, and if they live long enough, they'll probably talk about me to their grandchildren. Because of their need, because of their desperation, she loved much. She had no hope. She had no hope because of her sin. 
And when she was pardoned, she loved much. A reporter came to me one time I was preaching. He was furious. He walked up to me and he goes, why are you saying all these horrible things? I said, because I want you to love God. The holy Christian is the Christian who is literally taken aback by the love of God manifested in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And if I have to draw the darkest night, I will so that you see the star. You know, this afternoon, let me ask you a question. Those of you studying astronomy or science, or, where did all the stars go? Did some cosmic giant come by and just pick them up in a basket and walk away? Where did they all go? No, they were there. Why, why couldn't you see them? It's just too much light. But boy, when it's a pitch black night, especially up in the mountains of the Andes, it's a pitch black night and there's no artificial light. You've never seen such stars. I bought my wife an engagement ring three years after I married her. And I bought it at Service Merchandise. It was $250. I said, I'll take that one. The guy looked offended. And he put it out there and I said, you said it had a diamond. He said, you said you had $250. I said, I don't see a diamond. So, what did he do? Black velvet. He brought it out. And he laid that ring on that black velvet. And what did I see? Even then, I saw light. Even then, I saw a diamond. I don't want to rain on your parade. I don't want to hurt your self-esteem. I want you to love God. I want you to see what Christ, from what Christ has pulled you. But God, look at that. But God. I mean, one of the things I tell Christians that are struggling with their assurance, I love this. I tell them, here's where you're wrong. Here's your problem. You haven't quite learned there's only one hero in this story of redemption. Only one. Our elder brother, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon was right. He said a ladder that... Uh, Reaches to the top but doesn't reach to the bottom is no good. And one that reaches to the bottom but doesn't reach to the top is no good. And that it is necessary for us to understand the immenseness of our depravity so that we might understand something of His infinite grace. And it is all of grace. Can you not see that now? If verses 1 through 3 is not enough to convince you, then verse 4 ought to be. Because from now on, he's going to talk about our salvation. And guess what? Not one mention of you or me. Not one mention of your merit or my merit. Look what it says. But God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. You know, whenever we come to talk about man's salvation, you need to understand something. There's only two options. When you talk about God's motive for salvation, there can only be two options. One of them is God found motive in us. The other is that God found motive in Himself. Now you need to be very careful how you answer this because it will determine whether or not you're Christian. You see, all the religions in the world, all of them, if, 
if you ever want to take a class on world religions, I'm your guy. Why? Because really, you, this story about there are thousands and thousands and thousands of religions, that, that's just not true. There's only two. Really. There's a whole group of religions out there in one group, and, and it's works. It's works. And then there is only one other religion that stands alone by itself, and it makes Christianity distinct from everything. It is Christianity, the religion of grace. God saves man because He finds in man some reason for saving, but we've already disproved that, haven't we? Or God finds reason in Himself. In His character. In who He is. And that's what Paul is teaching here. He says, but God being rich in mercy. Now what is mercy? Wow. That's a hard one. It's so big. So many terms can be used. And none of them seem sufficient. Even when you gather them all together. Then what is mercy? It is, it is God's... Pity, his compassion, his benevolence, his kindness upon the creature in dire straits. That's what it is. Now, what does it mean, rich in mercy? Well, let's go back to the description of us as children of disobedience. When it says children of disobedience, it means that when someone, if someone looked at us with a keen eye, with a biblical eye, the outstanding characteristic that they would see is our disobedience. When someone looks at a keen eye, with a keen eye, a biblical eye, at God, if they were to come from another planet somewhere, had no influence, but were rather rational, and they read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the one conclusion they would come to is this, God is merciful. He said, well, what about all the judgments and everything? They would see that there was reason for it. That in every one of those, God was just. That would not amaze them or shock them. What would amaze them and shock them is when God showed mercy. God is rich in mercy. That's what He is. Now think about this. The story of the Samaritan. I mean, there's a whole story here about the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. And he is applauded by Christ because he showed mercy. And for 2,000 years since that story was told, he has been applauded by so many cultures and peoples. The Good Samaritan showed mercy. What a wonderful man. But the Good Samaritan showed mercy to a victim and we applaud him. God showed mercy to hardened criminals who deserved his wrath. How much more should we applaud him? How much more? Now, from where does this mercy come? Look what it says in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. What is the love of God? It is that attribute in God that causes Him to give Himself selflessly for the benefit and the good of others. Now here's the question. Why would God love us? In light of verses 1 through 3, why would God love us? I don't know. 
I've read most of the books. I don't know, except that God is love. And it was His sovereign good pleasure to love us. You know, my wife is beautiful. I don't walk around asking her, why do you love me? I don't want to create doubts or second thoughts or <laughs> anything like that. I'm like, just keep your mouth shut and maybe this will go okay. Men, I'm not, guys, listen to me. I'm not romantic. I'm not, I'm, listen to me. This is not about poetry. This is about a man's response to this immense love of God. Paul said he was constrained by the love of Christ. So many people get that twisted. You know, they, they think, wow, Paul really loved Christ. I don't think that's what Paul means. You see, sometimes when we sing songs about our love for God, like, oh, how I love Jesus. I remember singing that back in the 80s. And I got to the point, I felt uncomfortable. I mean, we can sing that. We should love that. We should sing that. But there, most of the time I'd find myself singing, oh, how Jesus loves me. Because... Really, I can't find a whole lot to boast about with regard to my love or devotion to God. It does not promote in me courage or strength or hope or anything. But when I look at God's love in Christ for me, now there, that'll give you courage. That'll give you hope. That'll spur you on. That'll make you go and go and go and go. When he says this, I mean, look at his language here in verse 4. Being rich in mercy because of his love with which he loved us. I really think, now I don't know this for sure, this is just my opinion, but I really think Paul may have Deuteronomy 7 in the back of his mind. Listen to what God says to Israel. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of his people, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. It's like... It's like Israel asking God, why did you love me? And God says, I loved you because I loved you. It's a taunt. Do you understand what's going on here? It's like it comes from me. This is me, he's saying. This is who I am. This is why this whole work of salvation is about his, him demonstrating who he is to all of creation. Principalities, powers, mights, dominions, everything big, everything small. All of it that they might know who he is. You know, one day in heaven, I'm not going to walk up to you and go, wow, Dr. Lawson, tell me about all the great things you did for God. I just want to sit for 10,000 years and listen to it. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And he'd slap me anyway, if you can do that in heaven. But I may walk up to him and go, Dr. Lawson, we got, um, I mean, I got 10,000 years till my next appointment. Could you just sit down and tell me all the wonderful things that God did for you? He'd say, well, 10,000 years isn't going to cut it. I can't even get to the introduction in 10,000 years. You think preachers preach long now? 
It's his story. He's the hero. And that hero is made a hero by his grace. And grace is grace because we do not deserve it. I can't. I, I don't know sometimes how I even, I don't even know why they let me preach here. Sometimes I think they just let the door open too wide and a rat snuck in. I don't know. <laughs> Every good thing in my life, I can't attribute any of it to anything I fabricated, anything I fought, anything I initiated. There's not one good thing. Every good thing is grace. Just to swim in grace is grace. Everywhere, grace. Grace. It's amazing. Now, God's means of saving. We're going to hurry. I'm sorry, but verse 5. When you were dead in your transgressions and sin, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, notice, He's talked about mercy. He's talked about love. Now, He brings in grace. The, one of the important things I want you to see here is this. Why, when he brings in grace, does he reiterate our spiritual death? That we were dead. I think there's a reason. And I think a really good illustration is found in, in Genesis with our parents. When God made Eve, he put Adam asleep. And you say, well, of course he did, because he's going to take the rib out. Well, I don't think that's the primary reason. I think he was making a statement to Adam. Adam, you have nothing to do with this. Adam, I made her. She is the result of me. She is mine. And for my glory. Do you see that? In the same way, how could you and I contribute to our salvation when we were dead when it was accomplished? How? I mean, it's a logical impossibility. Let's go on. I want to look quickly at the magnitude of our salvation. Verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us, with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's so much to be said here, referring back to, to chapter 1, but I just want to say this. Two things. He made us alive. He made us alive. I no longer get into a shower in the morning and look and it seems like death's hanging all over the walls and there's no reason to be alive. I don't do that anymore. I'm alive. But here's the great thing about being made alive. It's not being made alive to claim blessings or made alive to walk streets of gold and gates of pearl. He's made us alive to know Him. This is eternal life. To know Him. This is the greatest of all graces we are His people, and He is our God. Eternal life, student, began at the moment of your conversion. But what is eternal life? To know Him. Do you realize what happened? The moment you were converted, you began a journey, an exploration 
a caravan of discovery. What do I mean by that? Listen. Heaven is a real place. Heaven has all these things. It's described many times in the Scriptures, and I think we can draw pictures from that. And I'm not trying to reduce that to rubble. I believe in that, and I believe it's special and it's marvelous. But, you know, you can only walk down streets of gold and swing on gates of pearl so long. One of the philosophical problems of eternity, of heaven, is how do you know? I've had professors ask me this, so how do you keep from going mad? Because sooner or later, things are exhausted and it's just routine, routine. I say, well, it would be if it wasn't for the fact that there's an infinite, glorious God there. The moment you were converted, you began an exploration. Not some vessel into the sea or some spaceship into space. No, with the Word of God and prayer. To know Him! To know Him! And that will go on throughout all eternity. You will be an eternity of eternities in heaven and you will still not have even begun to discover the glory of God. And that's what makes it so spectacular. Such a wild hunt and such a wonderful life here. It's tracking down, chasing down. The glory of God. Just recently, I was at a, an event and didn't get home until 11 o'clock at night. It's spitting snow and everything. My son comes up to me and he goes, Dad, shot a deer. Can't find him. <laughs> okay? All right, let me get my clothes on. So it's tracking and tracking and tracking. Drop of blood here. Footprint here. It's starting to snow. It's getting covered up. Here's a branch broke. There he is. There he is. I realize I'm in California. I probably shouldn't have given that illustration. <laughs> I was hunting down the tooth fairy with my son. Would that work? <laughs> I shouldn't have said that either. But when we found him, just a deer, mom's going to be happy dinner. Here we go. Good job, son. But this wild thing that you begin the moment you're converted. That's why I was telling the young guys today, I said, you know, these Bible teachers will tell you when you read the Scriptures, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, what is it saying about me? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> that will not help you. You ask yourself, what is it saying about Him? What does it say about God? God's work. A quick thing on the Christian life, it's like this. Knowledge. The foundation of everything is knowledge. When the biblical knowledge is apprehended by faith, it produces a disposition that makes one useful and obedient to God. My joy comes from believing all that God has done for me in Christ and that joy and that hope and that courage that comes from Him then results in obedience and perseverance. And that's what this is about. That's what his prayer in chapter 1 is about. Is He's praying that your eyes will be opened to everything you were so that you can see everything that He did so that you will be motivated and empowered for an enduring, long-lasting service to God. Now, another thing we share in His exaltation. This creature of evil that I was has now been made 
a son of God with full rights and fellowship and co-heir with the Son of God. And such things have been said as this, Father, you loved them even as you have loved me. Now think about this. If God had condemned the entire human race to hell, He would have been just. If God had scorned us and sent us to some remote part of the universe to live in misery, like waiting for Godot, to just live in misery for eternity, that would have been gracious. If God had made us servants to angels, who could have complained? If God had made us on par with angels to serve Him, it would have been beyond poetry. But God made us to be His sons and His daughters. To know Him and to be loved by Him. Now, we'll finish with this final purpose and let's just look quickly. Verse 7. So that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you have any idea what's awaiting you? You understand this, young person. See, I'm looking for missionaries. I'm not just preaching here tonight. I want people to go fight hell with a water pistol. I want missionaries. I want the gospel to advance. And this is where it starts. Do you have any idea what future is awaiting you? Look in chapter 3, verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Creation is far bigger than anything we would know, but God is revealing Himself through the church to all of creation in such a way that it would have been impossible without the church. And guess what? God is giving a demonstration to the entire created universe with regard to how good He is and He's using you. Throughout all of eternity, God will heap greater and greater measures of grace upon you. Revealing to all of creation just how good and kind that He is. I wrote something here I just want to read to you. And that's where we'll end. Your father and your mother should have been eternally condemned in the garden. But they were given grace and a promise. Each subsequent generation that came forth from their loins should have died as in the days of Noah or in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Every nation, tongue, and tribe would have in its wickedness ripped itself apart. But God, by His common grace, restrained the evil of the nations that He might do a work of redemption on the earth. And then, in time, in the fullness of time, God sent the Son of His love. That's what He did. His Son bore your sin. He lived a perfect life. He bore your sin. He suffered your wrath. He died in your place. He rose again from the dead. He ascended up on high. And now there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then you were born, student. You were born. 
your condemnation should have been fixed at birth. Do you understand me? Your condemnation should have been fixed at birth. And every, as you grew, every sin you committed was enough to condemn entire worlds to hell. Do you hear me? But when it pleased the Lord, He called you. He called you. He made you alive. He pardoned you. He adopted you. And now, you have become His workmanship. And He will be faithful to you until you stand before Him blameless and glory. And then throughout all the eternal ages, throughout all of them, He will heap greater and greater measures of grace upon you to demonstrate His goodness and for the praise of the glory of His grace. And that is why, my dear students, that is why we go on. That is why we sacrifice. That is why we turn our backs on this world and we follow Him. And that is why we do it not in some monkish type of dark piety, but we do it with joy. We do it with joy. If He took and had, if He threw me in prison, cut my tongue out, allowed my enemies to take out my tongue, and I rot in prison for the next 30 years. There's only one proper response. Raise whatever part of my body is left and praise to Him. Do you understand that? Do you understand grace? What's been done for you? Totally undeserved. Totally and completely undeserved. I don't want you to be driven by guilt. I don't want you to be driven by condemnation. I want you to be driven by love because I am convinced that once a person is truly converted, the most powerful, the most powerful influence on their life is the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please help your people. In Jesus' name, amen.